Excuse me? Concert. It's over. You looking for someone? I'm sorry. Where do I remember you from? Ah. Uh, Oceanic 815? From Sydney? And that's how I know you. No. That's not how you know me. Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I have looked at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be looking at the second part of the series finale, 618, the end. This is the 121st hour of the series. Well, here we are, and uh, I think before we jump into the, the, the podcast proper, uh, I think it's just worth kind of pausing for a moment, taking a little stock of uh, of how far we have have come. Uh, certainly, if it if it wasn't for uh, the all the listeners that the podcast has had, uh, for all the times people have uh, shared their thoughts via email, Twitter, etc. Uh, I don't know that I would have uh, always had the gusto to to be churning out the podcast. Uh, week after week after week. I'm certainly looking forward to uh, a different change of pace after looking back at Lost has concluded. Uh, in a certain sense, this is the last uh, the last time that I'm needing to kind of uh, get the podcast done week of next week's uh, episode where I start to look at the, the music of the series uh, is already recorded and in the can ready to go. It'll kind of be a, you know, a, a slow exit to the podcast from here in the coming weeks. But uh, I think it's fitting. Here I am about uh, 52 hours or so before this episode should drop. Not not as last minute as it's been, but also uh, kind of feeling a little bit of the, the pressure of a deadline. Uh, you know, I think it's fit, fitting to be doing this last episode uh, with, uh, you know, with the deadline coming down as there have been 120 deadlines before it. Uh, I want to say, too, yes, in the next two weeks, there will be episodes looking back at the, the music of the series. Next week will be the music from seasons one through three. The week after that, seasons four through six. And, of course, uh, that being helped out by my podcasting pal, Pete. Uh, the week after that, yes, it will be looking at the new man in charge, the last bit of uh, of story that we get from the show. And uh, then after that, on 8.15, the exit interview. But here's what I suspect. I suspect some of you uh, who are listening will probably be saying goodbye after this episode. And that's that certainly is fine if, uh, if, if the music episodes aren't your thing. Certainly, you know, there there are lost music podcasts out there that will do it better than Pete and I can. And I understand if you, you, if, if, if that's it. So if that is it, I just wanted to say, indeed, thank you to all the listeners. Um, one quick, small announcement, maybe it'll turn to something big, but it's a small announcement now. I definitely, in thinking through things myself and talking to some people here in the real world and talking to 
some of you out there on Twitter and email, I definitely want to make a go of turning Looking Back at Lost into a book. Uh, and that's going to be a project I'm going to focus on maybe as we get into August more, starting to type stuff up, seeing what that's like. Do I have the gusto? Do I have enough time in my, you know, in the goings on in my life with some of the other podcast projects? And also, if you can imagine, there is a, a life that I have outside of, uh, of, you know, making podcasts for the internet about TV shows. But uh, I definitely, I'm going to make a go of it. If, if, uh, the farthest it gets is some ebook thing. I'll let you know about it. If it if it if there's some sort of um, uh, you know uh, self print option that uh, uh, our pal Ian on Twitter had recommended to me, uh, I'll I'll let you know about that too. But it definitely um, you know I was I was listening last night to last week's episode. Uh, to you know the end part one and uh you know in that episode i reflect on how basically since the show has been on i haven't uh haven't been away from lost for more than six months at a time and i kind of feel you know at this point we're we're uh, coming up in september on the ninth anniversary of when the show started uh why not keep going here i kind of have this podcast resource let's see what we can turn it into from there so i'll keep you posted on uh on twitter i'll keep you posted on you know via email if you uh, email to ask um but uh if if there's any big news i'll update the podcast feed but just wanted to share that that you know yes this is the end of the end uh at least episode wise for the podcast but i think there's still still a future um for looking back at lost Anyhow, as we start to transition to this week's episode, a feedback reminder, you can say hello to me on Twitter anytime where I'm looking back lost. You can send an email, lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. Leave a comment on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. And you can call the listener line, 732-707-1815. With that, let's get into this the uh, the final Wikipedia summary for an episode. On the island, during a prolonged fight, the man in black stabs Jack in the same spot where his appendix was taken out and almost kills him when Kate shoots the man in black in the back, allowing Jack to kick him off the cliffs to his death. The island continues to crumble and Jack realizes that he has to restore the light of the heart of the island. He tells Kate to get Claire on the plane and leave the island in case he fails. The two profess their love for each other, and Kate leaves with Sawyer, while Hurley and Ben follow Jack back to the pool. Kate and Sawyer travel to Hydra Island via Desmond's boat Elizabeth, to the site of the Ajira Airlines plane where Lapidus, Miles, and Richard have been quickly trying to make it airworthy. Kate convinces Claire she can help raise Aaron, and they head for the plane. After Kate, Sawyer, and Claire board the plane, Lapidus successfully gets it off the island. Jack leads Hurley and Ben back to the heart of the island, where Jack convinces an emotional Hurley to take over as the protector of the island, stating Hurley was always meant to be the leader. Hurley and Ben lower Jack to the dry pool, where he rescues a barely conscious Desmond. Jack manages to restore the light by replacing the stone plug, and is enveloped in the light that surrounds him. 
Hurley, whose new role as the protector of the island, does not know what to do. Ben tells him that he should help Desmond get home and suggests there may be a better way for protecting the island than how Jacob did it. Hurley asks him for help, and Ben is honored. Back reawakens outside by a river and walks toward the bamboo forest. In the flash sideways, Eloise Widmore talks to Desmond, asking what he wants to do after everybody knows. He answers that they will be leaving. When asked if he's going to take Daniel with him, Desmond answers that he won't. Backstage, Claire enters labor, and Kate and Charlie help. When Aaron is born, the three flash back to when Aaron was born on the island. Desmond appears and asks Kate if she understands. She says she does and asks, now what? At the hospital, John Locke is brought out of surgery, and he says that the operation worked. John watches his toe move and remembers his time on the island. Jack watches, and he has a momentary flash. He wants to leave to see his son, but John tells him he does not have a son, and hopes that someone does for Jack what Jack did for Locke. Sawyer finds Son and Jin and offers them protection, but they say they don't need any. Jin tells him, we'll see you there, and they leave. Sawyer finds a vending machine, but the Apollo bar he paid for gets stuck. Juliet appears and helps him. When they touch, they remember their life on the island together, while repeating the same lines that Juliet had said when she died on the island. At the concert location, Jack sees Kate and asks where they know each other from. Kate touches him and Jack flashes again. A confused Jack resists, and she tells him to accompany her for him to understand. At Eloise's church, John arrives and finds Ben outside. Ben asks for forgiveness about everything he did to him, and John forgives him. Ben tells him that most of them are already in the church, but he will stay for a while. John walks into the church. Afterwards, Hurley exits the church and sees Ben and asks him to come inside. Ben says he won't, because he still has work to do. Before entering again, Hurley says that he was a real good number two, and Ben replies that Hurley was a great number one, referencing the time they spent on the island together when Hurley was made protector. Kate takes Jack to the church and says that his father's coffin is inside. She says that once he is ready, he will be able to leave with the others. Jack enters the church and finds a room with his father's coffin. Touching it, he remembers all the time he spent on the island. When he opens it, however, there's nobody there. As for the final scene or two or three of the series, dear friends, I think we'll save that for the ending and start now with my thoughts about the episode. The finale picks up in its last hour uh, with a tracking shot at the museum moving down from a floating shark display, haha, like the Dharma shark, uh, to Claire in obvious maternal distress. There's a wordless backstage worker who's told by Kate, um, Kate suddenly appearing, to go get a doctor. Gee whiz, if there's only some sort of world-class OBGYN around, although let's not forget, of course, that Juliet had gone back to the hospital. However, before we can get uh, the good mother stuff going, we hear from a less-than-good mother back under the tent. I thought I made it clear that you were to stop this. Perfectly clear. I chose to ignore you. And once they know, what then? Then, we're leaving. 
Are you going to take my son? Not with me. No. That the show had enough footage to fill two and a half hours with commercials shows it was ostensibly stretched to the max. They had planned for two hours and ended up with more. It clearly wasn't enough for three hours. Uh, And I think the pace of the finale is probably better for it. Yes, there's about 20 minutes on the cutting room floor. Uh, Based on what I've read, most of it isn't interesting enough to even warrant uh, kind of going over it in the Lostpedia section of this podcast. However, we have a couple of howevers, if you will. First is two and a half hours is the max in terms of if you're starting that last episode airing at 9 uh, o'clock p.m., as they did, um, kind of the latest you can go is to 11.30, have the 11 o'clock news delayed by a half hour. Um, If for some reason they had three hours and wanted to go 8 to 11, I guess that argument could be made. I don't know that that was necessarily an argument that the show, uh, I mean, with an extra 20 minutes of footage, is that going to take up 30 minutes with commercials? Maybe. Um, would it have been too too much, too much fat on the meat? Uh, I suspect if you can cut 20 minutes and this is still a fantastic two and a half hour finale, uh, I suspect probably the 20 minutes that you took off you didn't need particularly if you were aiming for two and ended up with um ended up with so much extra that you could then tack on you know what was tacked on so there's that however uh another however is despite this two and a half hour you know 617 618 being so large this scene that we just heard i think that that could have been a bit slower if time and pacing allowed. Have we ever seen Eloise out of her element? At the shooting of of her son, perhaps we have. Um, But even in the moment, it's possible that young Ellie didn't completely accept the totality of what she did. Further, later in her life, given this monastic uh, dedication to the island that she has, uh, again, later in life, she was troubled by, but found solace in sending her son to his death. The point is that in this scene, the minute Desmond doesn't back down, indeed, he doesn't even, quote unquote, stand up to her. He just merely holds his own. The minute that that happens, she folds completely and utterly. She realizes what he is, the conduit by which so many will be saved from this place, and can do nothing about it, aside from her very, very sheepish pleas that, you know, can he can he spare her son? Speaking of sons, we're back to the backstage area with Claire's delicate condition worsening, down to the whole, you know, get water, clean blankets, you know, business, which gets us ready to... Push! Okay, we're gonna try again. You're doing good. One, two, three, push! As the flashes start to occur, there's such a quiet dignity to the scene. We've figured out the pattern at this point. 
And the show doesn't need to draw out the labor, as TV shows okay. often do. Push, push again. The one who carries the scene, though, is Evangeline Lilly, who's able to impart the knowledge of her awakening across her face and able to do so with very little time to do it. However, the scene builds and builds. In a moment, it'll be Dominic Monaghan who carries the motion of the plot in a scene which curiously is carrying the burden of three characters coming into the light in what I'm sure was logical on paper, but risks just barely being a tad hurried now that we've seen this uh, awakening so many times. But Monaghan as Charlie has so often been the clown, either being directly jovial or darkly funny. See, for example, vomiting in the copier. To see him here crying, his jovial, amusing face replaced with a mask of overwhelming emotion. It's a tremendously effective way to, 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 to make the audience, or at least this member of the audience, cry again. Thank you. Just a blanket. Then go ahead and bring it to her. Couldn't find any water. And what is it that Kate is thanking Charlie for? Well, Mighty Tim on Twitter points out that perhaps Kate said thank you to Charlie for sacrificing his life to save them on the island. As Desmond turns the corner, re-entering the scene, he does so with presence of a quiet knowledge. As he looks at Kate, he once again looks so Christ-like, staring into her soul while he exudes a tremendous power, yet astonishing calm. Do you understand? So now what? You can really sense there at the end uh, with Kate's line, so now what? It's a line, albeit a bit mumbled, that is one being thrown to the audience. We, too, would like to know what's next. Uh, but you definitely get a sense there that kind of the um, the opening of this final hour uh, is, is, uh, is concluded with, and that there you can hear in, in the music and also in, in the plot, the pace is now picking up. Uh, it really is, uh, it, it's astonishing to me how, how well this, um, this final hour uh, does, uh, does kind of stand on its own, although I'm sure it was never intended to, uh, to be watched, uh, you know, without the, the preceding episode 617. But, uh, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in, uh, in a bit. Uh, but to answer Kate's question, what is next is the island, at least as we flash back to it, being torn apart, and that violent rocking is communicated by some extremely effective shaking of the camera. 
sells the severity of the situation just so, so clearly. Indeed, we get a, a moment just to see how badly things are being uh, shaken because a tree is just about to fall on Hurley, yet it is Ben, evil, evil Ben, who pushes Hurley out of the way. With that, the story pops back to Jack outside the source. He wakes up, he shakes off the rock to the head that he took from Smoky Lock, and goes uh, into the mouth of the cave, uh, yells for Desmond, then similarly runs on out of the bamboo grove. Uh, with that, the story moves to Hurley, Sawyer, and Kate, who are trying to remove the tree from Ben's midsection. I actually wondered, uh, again, kind of at this point, if at the, the top of this hour-long episode, the show was either trying to intentionally give a recap or maybe leaving open the possibility of splitting it all down the middle. Uh, for example, you know, do you end part one on one night and do, uh, uh, pardon me, do you do the end part one on one night and the end parts two and three another night as other season finales did? I wondered if maybe they were just leaving some story room there to do that. Why do I wonder this? Well, at this point, Miles radios for Ben and Kate answers. We're reminded that A, Claire won't leave. B, Lapidus is fixing the plane. C, they're leaving in an hour. D, our remaining heroes have to get to Hydra Island. O and E, Ben throws in that Locke has a boat with which our heroes can get to Hydra Island. I had cut the finale in half, uh, not equal halves, if you'll pardon the, the misstatement, but I had, had cut the finale where I did at a point that made sense to me. Roughly 46 minutes in to this double length and then some episode. Um, and at that 46 minute point, uh, that's roughly similar to where the first episode would be. That we have in the quote unquote first act of this podcast, if you will, um, a recap point in the plot. It's perhaps fate indeed. With that, the story moves to Smokey Lock's boat, being eyed by the former smoke monster, lest we forget he's now trapped in human form. It's a wonderful wide shot, and for all the concerns about how the first part was underplaying the nature of this storm that is coming, here it just looks wonderfully dark and rainy, even in a wide shot where the rain is likely an effect, you know, computer effect. The wide shot also allows for enough of a pause for Smokey's intent to become clear. He's getting on that boat, a boat which, lest we forget, was given by Libby to Desmond so he can prove himself for Penny over Widmore. It's a twisted web to weave when you say it out loud. Uh, we, the audience, should know these facts, so perhaps it's best that the show doesn't recount it, as it is a tad operatic when you say it out loud, isn't it? Libby to Desmond to Penny to Widmore. In the previous episode, I used the word Western to denote culture, a la Western civilization. Here, though, when Jack arrives, director Jack Bender uses visual iconography out of the other type of Western, the country and Western, Old West Western. Without the scene even hinting at all at a sense of the ironic, we have here Sheriff Jack and outlaw Smokey, separated by a distance while they stare at each other for a moment. 
the staring occurring in a wonderful wide shot that really does sell that distance between them, the rocky cliffs in the background, the height of the moment. Indeed, it is then that Smokey reaches for his knife on his hip, again invoking the notion of the outlaw's six-shooter, and they race for each other. It's a masterful way to end the act, an overhead shot of the two of them running towards each other across that lava cliff, those shots mixed in with the slow-motion close-up of Smokey's rage, and the final shot of Jack leaping into the air and punching downwards. It's with that we get the act break and in a rare example of direct storytelling from the show the fight simply continues there's lots of falling down on the hard rock and gut punches and another swirling overhead shot and the scramble for the knife while parts of the cliff break away a reminder of course that the island is shaking itself apart When Jack gets stabbed, there's just enough of a pause to not only sell the drama, but I really get a sense that there's just an extra beat, an extra flourish from Giacchino to sell it to anyone who can understand it. That is where Jack's mysterious, forgettable, yet memorable enough appendectomy scar was in LAX. Further, as Locke holds the knife to Jack's neck, there is surely meant to be the same reaction. That's where Jack had a cut on his neck. It's the first time that the show has truly committed to giving enough clues to the nature of the Flash Sideways world. Jack has gotten these wounds now, and he'll die thinking about them. Die thinking about a plane and the sky, and wake up on the Sideways 815, ready to straighten himself out one last time. I want you to know, Jack, you died for nothing. I saved you a bullet. And here, without uh, an overflow of drama, perhaps missing a slight overflow of drama, we have the end of the smoke monster as he takes his last couple of, uh, of moments looking around, kind of understanding the futility, I think, of his actions, but still confident that his hated island is going to uh, sink beneath the sea. And with that, Jack kicks Smokey down the cliffs, enough hits along the way to sell Smokey's death, and Smokey landing just by the water, his body mangled. I think that many, many viewers have the reaction of that's it for the final battle with the once powerful smoke monster. Yes, it is a bit anticlimactic, despite the fantastic fight scene. It may even be a bit open-ended for the first-time viewer. Can we really know that he's dead? Now, the larger question is, of course, is it a rough spot in the story Perhaps, though, let's not forget, the show was never, never about overcoming the monster. It was about our heroes overcoming themselves. As for Smokey dying where he does, I rather like that he's at the water's edge, but, but, still on the island. Even in death, he's not able to escape, not even into the water. With that view of dead Smokey Locke, 
we flash sideways to live sleeping lock post-surgery, which must have gone well because the nurse congratulates Jack. Uh, and then she comments that his neck is bleeding. It's a nice reminder for the audience as a whole, just to say those that maybe couldn't put all the pieces together during uh, Jack's encounter with the knife on the cliffside. Uh, you know, we did, of course, just see that injury occur, and now it's back in the sideways. Yet, in both dramatic irony and wonderful story construction, the scene is quickly about something else entirely. It worked. Well, it went well, but we won't know how well you responded to the surgery. No, some... Dr. Shepard, it worked. I can feel my legs. John, it's highly unlikely that you would regain sensation that quickly, so let's just take it... Coming up is a wonderful visual moment, one that's blocked wonderfully. We cut from sideways lock, screen right, to island lock on crash day, screen left. And what that lock gets is flashes. They are quick and perhaps not as emotional as the others. And I think the show has made a good choice here, for we both haven't been with Island Lock for a great many episodes. And more importantly, the effect of these awakenings may be losing just a touch of their potency, what with Sun and Jin and Saeed and Shannon and all that. Did you see that? See what? Then it's Jack who gets his first little flicker. And of course he fights it. He's the first one to fight it. You don't remember? Um, Mr. Locke, please, just, uh, just relax. What we need to do... What we need to do is go. No, no, no. Hey, John. No. Will you come with me? We're not going anywhere. You just had extensive spinal surgery, and I, I need to go see my son. You don't have a son. What? You don't have a son, Jack. The wonderful credit to the story construction is this. On the island, we've just lost the mythical villain that the show has had since the night of the crash. We need something to emphatically propel the plot forward at this point. And the story's answer is here. It's now about Jack finding the peace that others have. On the topic uh, brought up by David's email last week, as to the nature of the strangers uh, that we, the viewers, meet in the sideways world, uh, we ironically get a clue about David Shepard, as Locke says Jack has no son. I personally take that tidbit from the man of faith as proof that there are indeed nobodies in the sideways world, that some of the people, like David, are just reflections of shadows, perhaps extensions of Jack's dream to be a father one day, linked up maybe with Juliet's vague hope to be a mother, despite her knowing that her work would prevent a successful combination of medicine and marriage and parenting. But to bring it back to the clip, it is now very clear that the remaining 44 and a half minutes to the series will very much be about Jack's journey. And after the act break, there's a wonderful helicopter shot of Kate helping Jack up the cliffs as the sun starts to shine again. In closer shots, Jack makes a joke that all he needs is a thread and needle and a chance to count to five. A wonderful callback to the pilot. The scene, though, is a little pit stop to confirm Jack is hurt, to have Sawyer and Hurley and Ben rejoin Kate and Jack, for Smokey Locke's death to be confirmed to them 
and to us at home, and more importantly, perhaps most importantly, for the island to continue to shake, to tell us that there still is a bit of business left at the source. With that, we flash sideways to Detective Ford, walking in on Sun and Jin, who are smiling with such genuine happiness that both actors just do a fabulous job selling the idea that they haven't seen Sawyer in so very long, and they are joyful in seeing him again. Detective Ford is, of course, ignorant to all of this, though the sideways story gets a further pull when Jin tells Sawyer that they'll see him, quote, there. The scene concludes with Sawyer yell asking, see me where? Obviously reflecting the audience's questions at this point. After the act break, we're back on Hydra Island, established by a wide shot of the Ajira plane shaking. Then we get an update from Frank. Everything looks good enough. Well, until there's a hydraulic problem in the nose who's he what's. With a grim sense of the amusing, Miles is sent to the nose with a schematic and a roll of duct tape make sure everything is hooked up. No pressure at all on old Miles. Ben radios Lapidus for an update, which is by and large a a method by which we can transition back to Ben and Jack and all on the cliff. Jack spells out the mission at hand. He must turn on whatever Desmond turned off, and everyone else must get to Hydra Island, and Jack makes it very clear that he is staying. You think you can get that boat across the channel in time? Yeah, I can manage. Good luck to you, James. Thanks, Doc. For everything. James! If the island's going down, I'm going down with it. We go. Better get going. Uh-uh. No way. You think I'm going down there? I'm with you, dude. Okay. Kate. You gotta go. Get clear on that plane. Tell me I'm gonna see you again. Kate's pleading question isn't just in the moment. It's the show starting to fold in on itself to connect the island story with the sideways story. She wants to see him again, as evidenced by the kiss that they then share. And they will, of course, be seeing each other again soon enough. Jack and Kate's love for each other, thus professed. Jack, Hurley, and Ben leave for the island, while Kate and Sawyer presumably prepare to leave, ending the act. After the break, sure enough, Miles and Richard patching up the hydraulics with the line, I don't believe in many things, but I do believe in duct tape, as good a bit of wisdom as any, <laughs> at least thus far. Yes, we do delve into you know a multi-religious view of, uh, of our human state as the show wraps up, but so far, not believing in many things, but believing in duct tape, that's, that's good enough for me. The tension of the ticking clock is reinforced, with Lapidus saying he's leaving ASAP, and Kate and Sawyer rather spectacularly jump down the jagged cliff. Definitely an excellent job by the stunt people, and they head to the boat. With that, we flash sideways to Detective Ford, asking a random passerby, 
Dr. Jack, where he can get food. He's sent to the vending machine and says, thanks, Doc. That Jack is not wearing medical ID, nor is he in scrubs, that too shows that the sideways world is starting to crack. It's evidenced by the wonderful little moment of Sawyer wondering to himself, ostensibly why he just said, thanks, Doc. The moment is also reinforced by the fact that in the previous island scene, when Jack and Sawyer said goodbye, Sawyer called him Doc as well. Then it's off to the vending machine where there's one last Apollo bar joke, the machine not giving Sawyer his snack, and Juliet appears. Can I help you? It's okay. I'm a, I'm a cop. Maybe you should read the machine its rights. That's funny. Mm. Can I tell you a secret? Please. If you unplug it, and then you plug it back in again, the candy just drops right down. Is that right? Yes. And it's technically legal. Give that a shot. And as their flashes start, that works too. Uh. Whoa. Did you feel that? We should get coffee sometime. I'd love to, but the machine ate my daughter. I only got one left. We can go touch. There's something just so incredibly effective about the Sawyer and Juliet story, despite how brief it was. Perhaps it's a result that these two profoundly trapped and unhappy characters found in the Dharma Initiative, Peace and Tranquility for Three Years. Juliet. Juliet is... recount the words they shared when last they met in life, it just shows how effective their time was together despite most of those three years going by in a cut between scenes. The only complaint? That's how the scene ends? A bit of a ragged sudden end? Well, it is, and takes a little bit of the shine off an otherwise perfect scene. The story resumes with Sideways Jack, arriving after the end of the concert. It's over. Excuse me? Concert. It's over. You looking for someone? Yeah, my son. I was supposed to bring him here tonight, and then I couldn't come, and...
I'm sorry. Where do I remember you from? I stole your pen. <laughs> what? Uh, Oceanic 815. From Sydney. I bumped into you coming out of the bathroom and I stole your pen. And that's how I know you. No. That's not how you know me. It's an absolutely wonderful scene, and it, the scene's placement is perfect on the heels of Kate having just confessed her love to Jack a few scenes ago. Though Jack, wonderfully, frustratingly being Jack, he gets his flashes now from Kate and pushes it away, pushes away the profound nature of what is happening to him. It's an appropriate mirror to Jack on the Island who pushed away the man of faith mantle for as long as he could, stubbornly sticking to what he knew. The scene concludes with Jack clearly unsure what to do next, where to follow Kate, and with that we flash to the island, where Jack is clearly in worse and worse shape, but is receiving the help of Hurley and Ben. The series has, for all too long in these 120 and a half episodes, for Jorge Garcia to play it slow, to play the fool. But now the time has come for him to speak for us and for our wishes to be heard. No way. I'm not going to let you die. Really? I'm already dead. You said you'd protect the island. And that's what I'm doing. You're committing suicide. I'm not. This is the way it has to happen. This is what I'm supposed to do. You're not supposed to die. The island needs you. Really? I need you. What? It needs to be you, Hugo. I can't. It's supposed to be you. It was only supposed to be me so I could do this. But if someone has to take care of the island, if someone has to protect it, then, then it should be you. Really? I believe in you. All right, I'll take it. But it's only temporary. As soon as you get that light back in, I'm pulling you up and I'm giving it right back to you, deal. Deal. Hurley is so absolutely humble there, and his humility reminded me vaguely of the third Indiana Jones film, where the majesty of being a protector is misunderstood uh, to that of a cup of a king, when instead it's the cup of a carpenter. Hurley has been the everyman for so long, not the vaunted doctor nor the lovely runaway. And speaking of the cup of a carpenter, it's a battered, beat-up oceanic water bottle filled with a muddy splash of liquid, which serves to anoint him in the now-familiar ceremony, a trinity of times in which we've seen it occur, if you're looking for some further symbolism there. Indeed, it seems at times that, though I stand at the idea that Desmond is the most close to being a Christ figure, there's enough Christian metaphor to be shared by multiple characters. With that, back to the Ajira plane, which slowly springs to life, a simple scene meant again to add stress and pace to the show's timing. Then back to the cave, 
where Jack is slowly lowered down into the red, hellish source. There he finds Desmond, passed out, while steam billows up, and Jack grabs his side, a reminder of his stabbing which, while recounting the Christ metaphors, is in the same spot that Christ was speared by a Roman while on the cross. Desmond wakes to find himself surprised at still being in what he thinks is the fake island world. Jack releases Desmond from his job, spelling out clearly to us that he has to put the stopper back into the hole at the bottom of the pit. Jack's final fitting line to Desmond, I'll see you in another life, brother, said as the music swells, was Desmond's introduction in season two, building to this moment, probably not intentionally, but the show deserves the musical flourish and the pat on the back that it gives itself, because in this moment, despite whatever initial plans there may or may not have been, it works now. The line works just so wonderfully now. But it's no, not yet time to raise Desmond up. We go back to Hydra Island, established by the Elizabeth, anchored at sea, and Sawyer and Kate come ashore to find a falling-apart Claire, while Frank backs up the plane in a series of wonderful long shots and fantastic close-ups from the point of view of the wheel well. Really just a, a well-constructed series of, of shots. And the show is really feeling like it's moving now. So when Claire sits and cries and needs a pep talk to learn to be a mom, it does feel like a bit of a delay, a bit of an odd turn pace-wise. It is worth it, though, as Jeff Fahey commands the scene, barking airplane orders and calling Richard Ricky Boy. He's ready to blast on out of there. And for a moment, the certainty of our remaining season one heroes, Kate, Sawyer, and Claire, at least the heroes you know, who have a shot at getting off the island, uh, the, the certainty of those heroes getting out of there seems very vain indeed. So maybe he as much as I just criticized the Claire scene, maybe it does work in terms of really gumming things up on that part of the story, and that makes us buy into the fact that they just might miss things. The scene is briefly about the pushing of levers and dials moving and engines whirring, but then Sawyer appears and we have a break. Not in the action, but we, the audience, feel like we've caught a break. Maybe there will be some happy endings after all. With that... Back to Jack and the source, the lighting and blurry effects really selling the heat at the source in a skin-searing sort of way. But of course Jack does it. The show, at least the island portion, is on a bit of an autopilot at this moment, if you'll excuse the pun. By and large, we've reached the climax of the entire island story, even for the most daft of first-time viewers. Well, maybe not those, the ones that, you know, think everybody was dead the entire time because of the stuff over the credits they're the real dummies but for the next level up of most daft it seems that there's very little chance that at this point they will just kill everybody that the ajira plane won't take off and that hurley and ben will simply sink into the sea as we are after the climax of the island story things are just kind of wrapping up logically we can see the end in sight what is a mystery though for first-time viewers is the clock not a clock on screen your clock with 22 and a half minutes left half a darned hour-long episode when cut for 
you know, commercials. The plug is back. The plane is ready to take off. Hurley has been installed as the next leader. Jack is dying. With all this time left, nonetheless, Lost's two main questions still hang in the air. What could happen next, and how will it all end? It's amazing to have come this far, and the show's pacing to still be this crisp. As the pilot who didn't crash, 815, guns it, the ground cracking beneath the plane, anything is possible until the plane does indeed barely lift off. The effects here are brilliant. A point-of-view shot from the very trees 316 is about to hit. Then it shoots up, covering the camera with its belly, the plane does. Then the shot turns around to see that the plane has successfully taken off. The show has earned this sigh of relief. The smiles on board the plane, the, the, the sense of happy exhaustion, which quickly cuts to Jack, who has presumably failed despite having returned the plug. It's worth mentioning that this returning of the plug, intentionally or not, is an echo of Star Trek II, where we are surprised to see our hero Spock essentially doing the same thing, to be in an isolated room uh, as he saves everyone by fixing a vertical plug of sorts, and then must pay the ultimate price for that action. But first, Jack hasn't formally saved everything, not until the water indeed comes, the glowing light returning. We've seen its danger before of this, you know, of, of the pool. We saw Desmond go in there and kind of getting, it seemed to be seared almost by the electromagnetism that he is, uh, that he is resistant to. But Jack instead just lays there, laughing and crying and happy at having done what he set out to do, let's not forget, on crash day, to save everyone. Ben and Hurley pull up the presumed Jack, find Desmond on the other end of the rope, and the show takes its final act break as Hurley screams Jack's name. After the act break, the show now need not be subtle, the story having gone from Jack's sacrifice to an upward-looking shot of the Jesus statue outside the church. It doesn't play as funny at all, just proper and fitting. With that, Locke's taxi pulls up, and it feels curious that he's in a wheelchair. However, it quickly starts the beginning of a pure and heartfelt finale for one character. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, John. Is everyone already inside? I believe most of them are, yes. I'm very sorry for what I did to you, John. I was selfish, jealous. I wanted everything you had. What did I have? You were special, John. And I wasn't. Well, if it helps, Ben, I forgive you. Thank you, John. That does help. It matters more than I can say. 
What are you going to do now? I have some things that I still need to work out. I think I'll stay here a while. You know, I don't think you need to be in that chair anymore. The look on Ben's face as he takes his forgiveness is a purity of acting, a purity of character, and a sign of the Ben that we've always wanted to see. Goodbye, Ben. As Locke and Ben part for one last time, there still is something slightly off-kilter about Locke showing up in a wheelchair. Sure, it makes story sense because he was just fixed, but he was never physically broken in this place, was he? More importantly, I think we wish Ben could have been in the final church scene, but it suits the story so very well that he isn't there. He was for so long our beloved villain, and a villain he must remain despite his transformation in these, <laughs> I was going to say final episodes, really it's just in this, uh, you know, this, this final hour or two. He seems to be penitent outside the church doors, and there certainly is a need for that penitence, a truth to it. But though the story doesn't unfortunately linger with him, I imagine he's bittersweetly waiting for his island friends to leave. Then he'll head back and meet up with his daughter, Alex, meet up with her mother in an attempt to make both of those two right as well. Back to Island Ben, the music is vaguely evocative of season one as Desmond is proclaimed to be all right and the future of the island is set in place. Jack's gone. Isn't he? He did his job, Hugo. It's my job now. What the hell am I supposed to do? I think you do what you do best. Take care of people. You could start by helping Desmond get home. But how? People can't leave the island. That's how Jacob ran things. Maybe there's another way. A better way. Will you help me? I'm sorry. I could really use someone with, like, experience for a little while. Can you help me, Ben? I'd be honored. Cool. It's the last line spoken on the island. Hey, dude. Hello, Hugo. We're all inside. I don't think I'm coming in. 
You know, you were real good number two. And you were a great number one, Hugo. Thanks, dude. I'll see you. I'll back off a, a, a direct Christian reading of that scene, but I can't help but note, I mean, my goodness, you want to talk about redemption, you want to talk about about uh, finding forgiveness in, in some higher power, uh, or finding forgiveness even from your, your fellow man. I mean, for all the, the, the evil that we have seen Ben perpetrate for, for five seasons on the show, it's just absolutely astonishing uh, that that he is able to to get past that history of his to become the number two on the island, and again for no particular reason at all. I just assume that Hurley uh, and perhaps Ben, but I imagine that Hurley was the island's protector for many millennia, just as Jacob was. Just as I would make the argument that that mother was before Jacob and to think that Hurley uh, pardon me to think that Ben was there ageless uh, finally kind of finding the the recognition that he always searched for but also finding the the guidance that he never had from his far father from Dharma from Richard from Jacob to now be receiving that guidance but also being able to to guide that guidance or to guide the protector it's just it's a wonderful story arc for one of the most uh wickedly beloved characters of the entire series uh, again it is appropriate that for all his sins he does not uh move on with the rest of you know with our heroes i don't think ben is ever our hero we enjoy him because Michael Emerson is this wonderful, wonderful actor who can just take these lines and run with them, who can do things with his body, his voice, his eyes. He's perhaps the best actor on the show. Uh, but our love for Ben as a character is separate, I think, very, very separate from our love for Ben as a person, if you will. You know, I, as I've said before, I think if you needed to be stuck on an island with any of these people, you you know, Saeed might be at the top of your list because, you know, he's a good person in bad circumstances. Uh, ben would probably be at the bottom of your list um, because you couldn't quite ever be sure that he's on your side. And you might wake up one morning with your neck broken and, you know, being all dead on account of Ben. But just... You know, what a notion that he too can can find a way back to goodness, a way back to purpose. That his his drive for power wasn't necessarily um, the drive wasn't wrong, just the path that he took to get there for this first uh, you know forty years or so of his life. That was the wrong path. But then once everything was settled, indeed, you know what? Well, yeah. Jacob had uh, had an eye on him, but, you know, the, the fit with Jacob and Ben was not correct. But with Ben and Hurley, uh, I personally like to imagine that for as long as Hurley's, you know, centuries and centuries and centuries reign on the island was, I like to think that Ben was was there as well. His, his ambition um, 
keeping him going you know the way richard at a certain point does feel well certainly at the you know by the end of the show richard is happy to move on happy to be released from his from his role happy to to live a normal life again but i like to think that ben's uh oh his arrogance almost drives him forward to stay in the job but his appreciation for hurley his his acceptance that hurley's wisdom is better than his and the lessons that ben has learned from you know from these five seasons that he was on the show that that also keeps the arrogance and ambition in check to to have him be uh, the effective number two as as hurley says and kind of starting to move on from that scene just as the show has always dared to jump across time here too it starts to tease us in that you know in these last two scenes of ben being asked to be the number two to here it is after the end they both that you know hurley has been dead ben has been dead but hurley happy to see him glowing to see him you know the, the the best of compliments for him being a great number two ben clearly uh touched to have received that compliment and happy to give one back there's more story out there there's the story of hurley's island of ben as the go-between the show is teasing us with that in these final minutes but it's just not lost story it's not being told to us and there too is in that scene the essence of the series people helping people jacob for all his vaunted powers was always just a man like hurley like christ if the metaphor isn't wearing too thin or perhaps if it isn't inappropriate certainly hurley and jacob were men with unimaginable powers to be sure but men grounded in their humanity to see wide-eyed hurley just you know overwhelmed by the responsibility of of it all of being handed the protection of the island it's such an honest human moment and to see him at the church sharing ironically in what was the last scene to be shot of the series the scene we just heard outside the church between him and ben seeing him sharing that sense of confidence and pride at having tackled the impossible that is so very human as well and with that jack and kate arrive her knowing him still ignorant there's a tiredness to kate's eyes perhaps it was evangeline lily perhaps it's the character regardless it works kate hopes she is ready and ready to leave with that we move back to island jack broken and dying as he wakes up in the water his earthly leaving very much close at hand back to the church there's another swirling shot of a statue as jack walks in to that famous back room the show offering mute counterpoint to judeo-christian influences on the story the show's multicultural point of view here flourishes first with little ornaments of religion then the famous stained glass window which speaks to the show's great philosophical statement perhaps the greatest statement that the show has the idea that there are many perspectives and these perspectives are simply paths to the same source to the same enlightenment 
perhaps. And the show may even be arguing or softly suggesting in that one bit of set dressing that these are all separate paths, different paths to the same God. For a show born in so many ways out of the strife and differences of 9-11, it is so very fitting that the show pauses to let us see all of this and to just ponder it for one moment amidst our, our what had been presented as kind of, you know, an action drama, mystery of the week, longer-term mystery, for it to have reached this room and just to pause just before that last little bit, just before the show really starts to slide away. It's, it's the height of the series in so many ways. It's the height of storytelling. It's the height of the, the decade that it inhabited. And with that, Jack opens his father's coffin... Finding it empty. Hey, kiddo. Something else that the show has been about is searching for love. Jack searching for his father's love. And thus this moment is earned. Dad? Hello, Jack. I don't understand. You died. Yeah. Yes, I did. Then how are you here right now? How are you here? I died too. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay, son. I love you, son. Are you... Are you real? So, <laughs> yeah, I'm real. You're real. Everything that's ever happened to you is real. All those people in the church, they're all real too. They're all, they're all dead. Everyone dies sometime, kiddo. Some of them before you, some long after you but why are they all here now well there is no now here where are we dad this is the place that you that you all made together so that you could find one another. The most important part of your life was the time that you spent with these people. That's why all of you are here. <laughs> <laughs> 
Nobody does it alone, Jack. You needed all of them, and they needed you. For what? To remember. And to let go. Kate. She said we were leaving. Not leaving, no. Moving on. Let's go find out. The simple, sweet exposition offered by the Christian Shepherd is direct and all the explanation that the show needs to give us. That we're given it by the Father in the show is fitting. That some viewers didn't understand it is no fault of the show. Sometimes we're the heroes, and sometimes we're the ignorant. The final scene is one that broke my heart the first time I saw it, and broke it again a few days ago when I watched it for the podcast. To reunite all the characters that we've cared about is a gift. One that doesn't cause a raucous explosion of emotion, but a slow trail of tears. And that it is undercut with Jack's slow end in the bamboo grove, shows the majesty of the show's construction. A show created all too quickly to be successful. A show paid for to hurt a network. But here, it's the ultimate ending, one of life and death, of happy characters and a weeping audience. To see everyone there, it's just absolutely wonderful. When I first watched this episode, uh, and indeed when I watched it again for the podcast, I thought that the notion of purgatory was something limited to Christianity, but it indeed is something that is across the faiths through the strands of Christianity in Judaism and Islam in, in different forms. But the fact that we have in this final scene the, the affirming notion that... Uh, Oh, the mistakes that we've made uh, might need to be might need to be uh, paid for, but that there's always hope and there's always uh, a chance at at redemption. It's just such a wonderful, life-affirming message that the show concludes on. Uh, I can think of other se- series finales that have ended on darker notes or notes of hopelessness not here. I think that that's just so wonderful. Again, perhaps born out of uh, a a counterpoint to the show's uh, 9-11 roots, or just even beyond the time when the show was created and the decade that it took place. It's just so, such a wonderful notion to think that the people that we are separated from in life, that we will meet again as we are now. And it's just, I think part of the special nature of the show, part of the the smiling that we have through the tears is the fact that the show gives us this view of perhaps our future. 
But the emotional kicker is, of course, the appearance of Vincent the dog. It's what sends me over the edge and at the right time. Whereas Christian opens the doors, it's not just the light of the ever after that bathes the church. It's the show saying goodbye. It's our feelings for 121 amazing episodes created at a time and a place that will not soon be replicated on television. The show's grand scale and grand goodbye ending, concluding with the successful flyover of 316 as those who have not perished but have eternal life are bathed in the warm glow and Jack's eye closes at the end. I think as an epilogue of sorts, uh, a good place to take the discussion at this point would be to build off of uh, a conversation that was had on Twitter between Dan Mulderlock and Mighty Tim, specifically asking the question, so what happens with Jack after he dies? Uh, the, the question bandied about was, does he become some sort of uh, smoke monster now? And initially, I found the question kind of shocking. I mean, I kind of can't imagine Jack turning into a smoke monster. But the more I thought about it, is what happened to Jack in his, uh, in his death, in his going down into the source, is it that different than, uh, than what happened to Smokey all those thousands of years ago? Well, I think the first answer is this. The story doesn't need it to go there the story doesn't want it to go there and given the the unique uh, authorship properties that this television series had uh, in terms of being at a point where it was incredibly in control over its own destiny from from the first word from the first opportunity that Lindelof and Abrams had just kind of making some wacky show quickly uh, all the way to its its critical success, its viewership success, its uh, success online doing the alternate reality games and all that sort of thing. It's its beloved uh, place that it holds among the fans even now. They kind of, I think, get to dictate a little bit. If there's a gray area, they can just say no, and that's it. But, of course, we want a bit of a deeper meaning. That That has been the whole concept of this podcast right to, to look back with all the knowledge that we now have and to try and uh, try and uh, answer all these questions if there's one factual difference to be noted it is that uh, it seems that Smokey uh, was dead uh, before he hit the source or before going down into the source or some sort of combination there whereas Jack did not uh, die when he was down in the source, uh, nor was he dead after being uh, expelled out of the source. Uh, however, I I like to take a slightly different point of view, and I think it's one that is is the perfect way to end uh, the, the commentary on on this episode. And it is this: there was an essential badness, an essential evil in Smokey's heart before he 
went down into the source. Uh, the source, which we can imagine, is this combination of, uh, or maybe not a combination, but it's this 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 pressure point between the light that it, that is good and the the darkness the, the that it that it holds back that the the plug holds back. So he went down in there, feeling evil, being evil, having turned evil perhaps through understandable means, acceptable means, uh, through a raw deal that was not his own doing. But he went down there in an evil place in his heart, whether he was dead or alive. Uh, And the source magnified that greatly. That it then also ended up being a good counterpoint to his twin is is a story benefit. But I'm I'm pausing kind of a, a literary analysis view for a moment in favor of one that's a bit more... Uh, you know, that takes the view of these characters being real and organic, not kind of fictional constructions. So he goes down there with evil in his heart, and that is reflected back out in a terrible way. Jack goes down there dying, but pure of heart, and he is rewarded with not the torture of, uh, 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 of a life he cannot stand, as Smokey did. Smokey was just incredibly frustrated, filled with rage at the life that he had to live, the eternal life that he was living. Jack instead is given uh, by the source or the the elemental goodness that is down there. Jack is given uh, a very human thing, the, the the dignity of a life well lived and and a life coming to a close. Uh, not that any of us, I think, look forward to death, but in that the show is presenting and in that I think so many people's individual views or religious views or worldviews present some sort of, uh, I'll use the word adventure, some sort of adventure after this life, whether it's the adventure of reincarnation or the adventure of heaven or the adventure of seeing loved ones again, throwing off this mortal existence that that can feel so negative at times and and the hope that there is of something better out there that is what jack is rewarded with the simple natural human death and his ability to 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 move on to the next uh, portion of his existence and uh it's with that Note that kind of epilogue note that I think is a, a good place to bring my commentary to the end. And if it isn't a bit of, a, of an anticlimax, there's three bits from Lostpedia, all, uh, all quite good, which we'll now look at here. First is the scene in which the man in black stabs Jack on the cliffs involved swapping out a real knife for a collapsible one. During one take, the swap was not made properly, and Matthew Fox was stabbed by the real knife, which was fortunately stopped by a Kevlar pad that Fox wore under his shirt. Matthew Fox tried out various protection pads for that scene, and it just so happened that when the accident happened, he was wearing the Kevlar pad, the others of which were not stab-proof. It was even suggested that he not bother using a pad at all before the incident happened. And I mean kind of the cute coincidence aside, I mean, how awful that would have been for, the, for, for someone to have gotten hurt on a television show. Uh, you know, these are working actors, the same as there's working carpenters and electricians and lighting people and writers and producers and all that. 
and uh, certainly a, a lucky break there. Penultimately, there's the fact, which I referenced before, that uh, it was uh, the, the conclusion of the series was shot at 5 a.m. on Saturday, April 24th, the six-year anniversary of wrapping up filming for the pilot, Damon Lindelof's birthday. That was uh, a, a scene involving Hurley and Ben. And very lastly for this episode, something else that I've, I've referenced that I know you, dear listeners, know so very well, uh, but I think it's worth mentioning in its proper citation here. The stained glass window in the church shows symbols of the following faiths, the star and crescent of Islam, the star of David for Judaism, the Aum, widely used as a symbol of Hinduism, but also present in Buddhism and Jainism, the Christian cross, the Dharmakakra used in Buddhism, and the yin-yang disc as shown in Taoism. So certainly, and hopefully, a uh, unifying note with which to end. As we enter the, the podcast's epilogue, looking ahead to next week, will be the first of two music episodes. After that, uh, the last uh, vestige that the show gives us, an episode which I'm sure will be on the shorter end, but an episode nonetheless on the new man in charge where we get some more Hurley, some more Ben. We get uh, one more Dharma film. We get the answer to where the uh, where, where those food pallets came from. And uh, in what is not a wonderfully constructed little episode, when you watch it, we get a, a, a very fitting end nonetheless, one that I know sat well with me over time and particularly over the course of this podcast. So after that will be, of course, 8.15, the final episode in which I will give my exit interview. And with that, the podcast will be concluded. Hope all of you stick with, uh, with the podcast for this next month of uh, epilogue activities. Please do continue to Send in your thoughts. There's plenty of time for your voice to be heard on the listener line, the webpage, email, and of course, Twitter. Thank you, one and all, particularly if you are uh, amongst the listeners who uh, will not be moving on to the, the next four episodes. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for your continued uh, support for this podcast. It's only this past week I uh, got a tweet from someone who has just started listening. Uh, and I said how very fitting indeed because I'm in the middle of concluding it so that's part of the wonderful nature of, of podcasting that uh, hopefully there will be people continuing to listen to this for many years to come hopefully the, the light of Lost continues to, to shine on through uh, television screens for, for many years to come so that friends thank you again we'll chat next week for a reflection on the music from seasons 1 through 3 as always, take care, everyone, and bye-bye.